Jack looks awfully lonesome up there sitting right in there. So, you know, we have to give him a lot of support. Uh, Jack Rakoff is the W.R. Coe Professor of History at Stanford. He's a graduate of Haverford College and a Ph.D. student of the eminent Bernard Balin from Harvard. And Jack's been informing us about American politics uh, since his first book, The Beginnings of National Politics, an Interpretive History of the Continental Congress. That was published in 1979. That, that was a long time ago because he's done so much work since then. But it was a very important book. It's one that I used a lot in understanding the Continental Congress during the 1780s. And he, he kind of rescued politics for us when it was getting swamped by the social historians. Uh, his well-known original meanings, politics, and ideas in the making of the Constitution won a number of prizes, including the 1997 Pulitzer Prize. And Madison, of course, figures prominently in that. Jack is a very careful and perceptive reader of Madison. He, he, he plays with the language. He turns it around. And, and he's really one of the very, very best. In recent years, Jack's also become a public figure, a public intellectual, as, as we like to call them. So he's in the classroom and out of the classroom. He writes op-ed pieces for the LA Times, the Chicago Tribune, the New York Times. Uh, you may remember that he testified before the House of Representatives Judiciary Committee on the background and history of impeachment. And there is a real background and history to it in American history. His most recent work will be published this coming fall, so you'll get a, a heads up on that. Around the time of the anniversary of the election, the unfinished election of 2000. We look forward to that, as we do to Jack, talking about reading Madison's mind, and I can't think of anybody better than Jack to read Madison's mind. Thank you. As I was thinking on the way over that uh, there were a couple moments in the uh, Virginia Ratification Convention of 1788 and then again in the First Federal Congress of 1789 when the stenographer trying to record the debates uh, listening to Madison notes something to the effect that uh, here Mr. Madison's voice dropped uh, and his words were lost. Uh, I'm going to, I want to start this simply by apologizing for giving my remarks uh, sitting down, which is not my usual posture. Uh, but I flew across country yesterday with a bit of a virus, and I want to have enough strength to, <laughs> to get through uh, not only my own remarks this morning, but hopefully the rest of the day. So I thought it might be a slight advantage to me if, 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 I, if I took this position. Let me start by saying something about my title, because it actually has uh, two points of origins that, that I'd like to speak about very briefly. Um, one is somewhat prosaic, and the other, I think, is somewhat more substantive. Um, a few years ago, I was asked by the Library of America to edit a collection of Madison's writings, uh, which appeared about a year or so ago. Uh, it's a project I took on yeah, with somewhat mixed feelings. You know, it was kind of, kind of, it's kind of more of a dutiful work than something I really felt all that strongly about. Uh, but once it, was, uh, once it was completed and published, I have to say I felt terrifically proud about having agreed to do it because, uh, uh, because Madison's thinking is, of course, so important for us. Uh, and also because I think having a one-volume compilation of his most important writings and speeches uh, really does provide a, uh, a useful reference work. So I was given uh, several occasions to speak about the preparation of that volume, and the, the, the title of Reading Madison's Mind struck me as perhaps the most appropriate way to try to characterize what, what one should try to do as, as you dip into a volume of that nature. But then secondly, and, and more important, I hope, and I'll, I'll try to bear this out as I go along, uh, 
I've started realizing, having worked with Madison pretty much for 30 years or more as a, as a scholar, uh, in the last couple of years, uh, I've started to realize that there are depths to his intellect that I, I myself had not really appreciated before and that have to do very much with his uh, with the remarkable capacity for abstraction that I really want to spend a good part of my remarks this morning trying to explain. And, and that's why, I've, um, for those of you coming in, I hope everybody has this document known as the Vices of the Political System in the United States, because this is going to be not merely a paper, but a little bit of a teaching exercise as we go along. And we're going to spend a little time working our way through uh, the text, and, and especially through one particular passage of it. And when we get to that, I'm going to try to explain, and this is, I think, a wonderful uh, comment to make for a, for a Princeton audience, uh, why Madison should be regarded not only as a Princeton's first graduate student because he stayed on here to, to study Hebrew uh, for a bit uh, with uh, President Witherspoon, uh, but also I think Madison might well be regarded as Princeton's first game theorist. And those of you who know the history of game theory and who understand that Princeton is the institution uh, where modern game theory emerged, uh, I think we'll see there's a nice little irony, uh, perhaps something more, to thinking about Madison in this capacity. So if we want to talk about reading Madison's mind, what kinds of problems, what kinds of questions do we have to consider? Well, it seems to me there are three basic problems that are inherent uh, in this subject. The first, and I, th I suppose the most obvious, uh, is simply to understand the content of James Madison's ideas. What we have to do, of course, with any thinker, uh, to understand him or her, we, you know, we, we have to be patient, we have to work our way through the relevant texts, uh, we have to make sure we understand the argument, we have to look for echoes and resonances, we have to look for inconsistencies, uh, but we have, to, we have to get a handle, we have to get control over the body of the material. Madison, I think, is a particularly interesting and challenging figure to work with in this respect uh, because he wasn't, in, in so many ways, so subtle and so nuanced uh, and, in a certain sense, so complicated a thinker. In this respect, I, I think it's, it's always useful to draw a comparison between Madison and, and his good friend and uh, political ally, uh, Thomas Jefferson. Madison said of Jefferson uh, after his death, a uh, wonderful encapsulated view of, of Jefferson's intellect. Uh, the Jefferson had the habit, common in men of great genius, of expressing in strong and round terms impressions of the moment. Jefferson, from Madison's perspective, was in a certain sense a bit of a streak hitter. Someone who was kind of given to go off on a, you know, on a certain tangent would, you know, would get a bee in his bonnet, would find a particularly elegant, concise, and vivid way to say something, and then would have to face the consequences, which Madison was usually eager to point out to him, of thinking through the logic of what Jefferson was saying. So Jefferson, of course, uh, is, is a much more vivid writer than Madison. It, you know, many, uh, many better phrases in, in the Jefferson oeuvre uh, than we'll ever find in Madison's. Uh, you know, much, much easier to quote. But Madison is certainly the more nuanced, the more complicated, uh, the more interesting, I think, from a scholar's perspective uh, to have to unpack. It might be said of Madison, uh, or at least it might be asked of Madison, whether he, ever, whether he ever had any impressions of the moment. I mean, one sense with Madison was that everything was always very, very uh, carefully considered, uh, deeply probed. Uh, and indeed, uh, it's, uh, it seems to me there's a kind of characteristic form of uh, Madisonian ex expression which is uh, no essay is complete without uh, three distinctions and you know, X number of qualifications on those distinctions. Madison's mode of analysis is constantly to distinguish one thing from another and to, uh, and to try to probe each one on its merits. So we start by recognizing Madison is not the easiest thinker uh, from his period uh, to come to grips with. Uh, and so that's our first problem. How, how, do we get, how do we get a handle on the content of his ideas? 
The second problem with Madison, uh, treating him, I suppose, biographically, is what might be called the consistency problem. Madison, after all, had a terrifically long career, active career in uh, American politics. He enters politics, oh, in the, you know, in the early months of 1776 as a delegate to the Virginia Provincial Convention. Uh, he serves uh, a term of the Virginia Assembly, loses an election, uh, then serves on the Virginia Council in the late 1770s, uh, then uh, serves in the Continental Congress in the early 1780s, back in the Virginia Assembly. Uh, back in, you know, then of course he writes the Constitution, helps to get it ratified, serves in the, first, serves in the early federal congresses, goes back to Virginia with his new bride uh, for a few years, uh, serves eight years as Secretary of State, eight years as President, and then we get to 1817. So Madison has an active political career uh, from, you know, 1776 to 18, 1817, that's to say four decades, and it's followed by uh, a vigorous retirement, at least an intellectually vigorous retirement, of two, fully two decades until his death, uh, June 28th, uh, 1836, uh, when his correspondence, which had become very attenuated in many ways during his uh, career in the executive branch, again, become, again becomes very informative and re deeply reflective about American politics. So we have to start by, by recognizing that here we have 40 years, and really in a certain sense, uh, 60 years uh, of active political commentary, and we, we, we might expect some variation uh, over the time, uh, and we, you know, we have to try and make sense of that. And of course, when we talk about the consistency problem, uh, much more narrowly or so, much more directly, uh, we also have to recognize that uh, there is a fundamental puzzle that all Madison scholars have to wrestle with, which is how was it that the nationalists of 1787-1788, uh, in a certain sense the, the reactionary radical who wanted to give Congress, uh, the new Congress, an unlimited negative over all state laws, becomes by 1798 the author of the Virginia Resolutions, uh, which can be rightly taken, again, with some Madisonian nuance, uh, as an early expression of the theory of, of state, states' rights and arguably even of uh, uh, residual state sovereignty, something we hope that Professor Mayer will be here to talk about later uh, this afternoon. Uh, so there's a, there's a, beyond, beyond the, the, the difficulty of the need to kind of track Madison's thinking over a period of 40, year, 40 years and more, there's the very specific problem. How do we understand how Madison, the arch-nationalist in the late 1780s, becomes the father of states' rights theory in the late 1790s. But third, and I think most important, uh, the task of reading Madison's mind involves understanding how he came to play the extraordinarily creative role that he did in the late 1780s uh, during the movement for constitutional reform that leads to the Federal Convention of 1787, uh, and then, of course, two years to, to the ratification of the Constitution by the summer of 1788, uh, and then the following year to the adoption of the Bill of Rights as a supplement, uh, important supplement, to the original constitutional project. Uh, at every phase of this movement, that's to say from the movement to, call, to reform the Articles of Confederation, to call a constitutional convention, to get the Constitution written, to get it ratified, to have it amended, uh, Madison was, it seems to me, without doubt, uh, indisputably, uh, primus inter pares, and perhaps uh, more than inter pares, really uh, a person who stands uniquely above all his colleagues uh, in this great project. Which is not, of course, to say that Madison got everything he wanted, because as we all know, in fact, he probably lost as many issues uh, as, as he won. And indeed, he leaves uh, Philadelphia, as I'm sure many of you know, he leaves the Philadelphia Convention uh, in some ways as a severely disillusioned. Uh, about the end result, and really quite pessimistic as to whether or not the Finnish Constitution uh, will uh, indeed solve all the problems that Madison felt had to be solved. 
but nevertheless, there's no question that uh, Madison is the key actor throughout this period and that, in, that his actions depend upon a kind of intellectual creativity uh, as well as a political ingenuity and, I suppose, uh, assiduity a kind of stick to about politics and a, and, a, and a creativity about politics, which is really quite remarkable. You know, if, if one reviews Madison's career in this period, I mean, just to go into it just a little bit more detail and r recall everything that he was involved with, uh, you know, Madison had you know, served in Congress, but in, in the mid-1780s, let's say, if, if we pick up the story in 1785, Madison at, at that point is deeply involved in trying to get the Virginia Assembly to enact uh, Jefferson's uh, revised code of, the Virginia, of Virginia law. Uh, he's deeply involved in defeating the, the famous general assessment bill uh, that Patrick Henry and others were supporting Virginia, which, which would have represented, a, in a certain sense, a, a, an establishment or reestablishment of religion. He succeeds in getting the, uh, uh, succeeds at that point in, in also having enacted uh, Jefferson's most important legislative uh, work, the, the Statute for Religious Freedom for Virginia. Uh, Madison is actively corresponding with James Monroe, who had taken his place in the Continental Congress. Monroe is, uh, and, and they are kind of discussing coordinating strategy about amending the Articles of Confederation. Madison is involved, although somewhat, initially somewhat skeptically, in the maneuvers that lead to the calling of the Annapolis Convention. In September 1786, he goes to Annapolis, which is a bit of a bust, uh, because hardly anybody shows up except for Madison and John Dickinson and Alexander Hamilton and a handful of other interesting types. Uh, and in Annapolis, they decide to uh, call the, uh, to go ahead and issue a call for a federal convention to meet the following May. Madison goes back to Virginia, makes sure that Virginia takes the lead uh, in carrying out that recommendation. He then begins his preparations for the convention, takes the leading role in terms of framing the Virginia plan, uh, takes the leading role, though by not the only dog could do so, uh, during the debates in Philadelphia, and so on and so on. I mean, it's just a remarkable record uh, of committed political activity. But what makes it all the more striking, it seems to me, is that Madison's efforts to deal with these problems uh, represent a, an extraordinary uh, burst of intellectual and political creativity, which I'm, I'm going to try to explain now in more detail as we go along. So if we ask the question, as historians have asked, how do we account for Madison's creativity? What was there about him or what, what, was there, what, what factors, what attributes enabled him to act in this way? Uh, there are a number of factors, it seems to me, that different scholars have, have talked about and, and tried to emphasize. To say thanks, I needed that. The, the first, uh, I think, fairly obvious, is, is a simple argument from experience. Madison, I think, uh, not, not quite alone among his contemporaries, but certainly in a very distinctive way, Madison came to live for politics in a way that I think was very rare in the 18th century. The only person I know of who I think who I'd really compare to Madison in this respect is Samuel Adams, a very very different kind of personality, to put it mildly, but uh, what the two men shared is a deep absorption in political life uh, that uh, was very unusual for a period when politics was essentially avocational. Not really professional, but avocational. Uh, when Madison went to the Continental Congress in 1780, he didn't go back to Virginia for three and a half years until his term was expired. It's worth noting in passing that Madison was the first victim of term limits under the Articles of Confederation. Uh, he's he's uh, he's in Philadelphia and then uh, actually of course briefly here at, uh, you know at Princeton uh, in the summer of 1783 for a, for a full period of three and a half years without going back once to Montpelier uh, and he never missed being away you know being away from Virginia never bothered him at least at least at this point 
Uh, once he returns to Virginia, he goes almost immediately to the Virginia Assembly. Madison found a fulfillment in political life, in public life, a fulfillment that the revolution really gave him an opportunity to, to enjoy and to discover uh, that he never would have found anyplace else uh, in, in, in his world. He certainly would not have found it as a planter uh, in the backwaters of uh, Orange County, Virginia. So we have to start by recognizing that one source of Madison's creativity may simply have been his deep, his deep political experience from which, he, from which he drew very profound lessons. Secondly, uh, it's fairly obvious that Madison, as, a, as an intellectual, trying to read his mind, so to speak, had a kind of studiousness, which I think is rare in public life. Uh, he believed that one, you know, it's a commonplace belief in the 18th century, to be sure, that one could indeed discover lessons from history and apply them to matters uh, of public affairs. But he went about doing so much more, with much, uh, much more assiduously, uh, much more scrupulously, and much more consistently than I think almost any of his peers. Part of his preparations for the Federal Convention as I'm sure many of you know, was to uh, work his way through a few trunkloads of books that Jefferson had sent back to him uh, from Paris, uh, works of history and public law and political philosophy. Uh, we have Madison's notes on a lot of his reading, the so-called notes on ancient and modern confederacies, which Madison went uh, with, I think, a great deal of frustration, uh, went through uh, all these histories, you know, going back to the, you know, the great confederacies of antiquity, uh, the Achaean and the Amphictyonic uh, confederacies and so on. Uh, Madison went through this stuff very scrupulously. He kept his reading notes, tried to figure out what had gone wrong with all these confederacies. Uh, and this is very much part of his preparations for Philadelphia. I mean, sitting down and reading these literally dusty tomes that Jefferson had shipped back from Paris. So he had a kind of studiousness and a belief in applied learning, which I think was also perhaps not uncommon for his age, but nevertheless quite distinctive in the way in which he applied it. Uh, some scholars have also suggested uh, that Madison owed a particular debt uh, to David Hume. Uh, the great Scots philosopher uh, and historian, and I suppose many other things as well, who Madison had first encountered here at Princeton. Uh, the late Douglas Adair argued in an important essay that uh, Madison's uh, agenda for Philadelphia at a critical moment was formed or reformed by reading one of Hume's essays, uh, The Idea of a Perfect Commonwealth. Historians have been talking about this, I should say, for 40 years, and I, I thought the subject was dead until I received a month ago uh, a, a fresh article on it uh, being submitted to the William Mary Quarley, which suggests it's still alive and well, and you know, there, there, there might still be a lot to the idea. So there's an ongoing controversy about how we measure Hume's influence, but again, uh, another example uh, of Madison as a, as a public figure who believed that the ideas he absorbed in his private reading might be relevant to his public life. And then finally, in, in terms of the kind of quality of mind, uh, it's clear uh, to me, I think for everybody who reads, uh, reads Madison, uh, that he, he felt very acutely uh, the same sentiment that uh, John Adams had expressed back in 1776 when Americans first begin writing constitutions of government. You know, there, there's a wonderful, uh, wonderful sentence at the end of John Adams' pamphlet, Thoughts on Government, uh, where Adams says, uh, you and I, my friend, uh, the pamphlet takes the form of, of a letter to his fellow delegates at the Continental Congress. Adams says something to the effect, you and I, my friend, have been sent into life at a time when the greatest lawgivers of antiquity would have wished to have lived, when before the present epoch had three million people a full field and a fair opportunity to form the wisest and best governments that uh, the human imagination can devise. I mean, I've, I may have garbled a little, but that's, that's the essence uh, of the quotation. Uh, this sense of opportunity that, uh, that a world of possibility had opened up to the Americans uh, 
that they uh, that they not just have to re think about governments as institutions that were passed down from time immemorial into which one was born but over which one had no control, especially in the sense of creative control. Uh, it's clear that Madison shared that sense of possibility that Adams had expressed so vividly back in 1776. And I think this goes with the frame of mind which we see so clearly in his writing, a willingness to challenge orthodoxies. A willingness to recognize that the learning that one derived from books, and which I've suggested could indeed be quite useful and, and valuable and could be applied, nevertheless could also be tested against experience and against the realm of possibility. So that sense of living in a world that was, as Tom Paine once put it, you know, we, you know, we, we can make the world over. Well, I mean, Madison, being rather conservative, was not, you know, was, didn't have Paine's kind of utopian enthusiasms. But the sense of possibility was certainly there. So I think these are all important ways to uh, think about uh, the sources of Madison's creativity. When, when we set about trying to read his mind, uh, when we try to uh, make, sense, make sense of it. Um, but I think we can push the story a little bit further if we look more, more specifically uh, at exactly how his thinking unfolded on the eve of the Federal Convention. Uh, of course, or, ordinarily when we try to read Madison's mind, what, what this typically means, or what this means, reads, means most often, is we consult his best known texts. That is to say, usually if we want to know what did Madison really think, or wh where did he distill his ideas uh, most vividly or most essentially, uh, I think the short answer, of course, is we'd open up the Federalist, then we'd read Federalist 10, and we'd read Federalist 51, and if we were more energetic, we'd you know, read any of a number of other essays. Uh, but the theory, the theory of Republican government that Madison expressed there, uh, by way of justifying the Constitution, was the end result of a prior process of theorizing about government. And I want, to be, I want to be careful to explain what I mean here. When Madison wrote The Federalist, uh, along with Hamilton and a few essays by John Jay in, in the fall of 17, beginning of the fall of 1787, uh, the three co-authors, as Publius, of course, had an agenda to have the Constitution ratified. Uh, they had a set of positions they had to defend. They were engaged in a public debate. They were responding to the kinds of criticisms that uh, had been directed against the Constitution by its anti-Federalist opponents. Uh, to some extent, what they argued in public was shaped by the arguments they had to answer coming from the other side. So if we look at the Federalist as the mature expression of Madison's theory, one of the things I think that we miss is there was the end result of a prior intellectual activity that really went back to the period before the Constitution was written. That's to say it goes back at least to the spring of 1787, arguably even earlier. The Madison's theory that's, was the product of an activity that I'm going to call theorizing, which, by which I mean using theory not to justify the positions you know you have to support, in this case, ratification of the Constitution, but theorizing for the purpose of analyzing what the problem was. So I want, to try, I want to try to distinguish theorizing as a political activity, using thinking somewhat abstractly about politics as a way of diagnosing what's wrong and therefore what must be done. I want to try to distinguish that from writing theory as an activity of persuasion. And what I want to do in, in the balance of my remarks here is to use this document uh, that I'll say something about momentarily, uh, Madison's notes on the vices of the political system in the United States, 
to show what the activity of theorizing as opposed to the production of theory as a rhetorical product was. Okay, so let me set the stage here. So in the spring of 1787, Madison was, was eligible again to, to go back to Congress. Uh, his th three years having uh, elapsed uh, since he was turned out in the fall of 1783. Uh, so he goes, he goes off to New York City. Uh, I'm sure he passed through Princeton en route. Uh, and Congress didn't have much to do because they had a hard time mustering a quorum. Didn't have any money, so even if they had time to do something, wouldn't have had the resources to do it with. Uh, Madison took his reading notes along, probably took a fair, enough, you know, fair chunk of his library along. Uh, and of course, by this time, most of the states have appointed delegations uh, for the Philadelphia Convention, which is going to meet in May. And sometime in the spring of, uh, actually really at the very beginning of the spring of 1787, really, really over a period, I think, of about a month, uh, sometime from mid-March to mid-April, from actually roughly from Madison's birthday to, let's say, the anniversary of Lexington and Concord, mid-March to mid-April, Madison pulls his thoughts together about, the, uh, you know, about what the agenda for the federal convention should be. Uh, we know this basically from four documents. Three are letters uh, to Jefferson, Edmund Randolph, and Washington, written between mid-March uh, and mid-April. Uh, and the fourth is the document that we know is the vices of the political system of the United States, which, which I hope everybody has a copy of, uh, because we're going to actually spend a little time walking our way uh, through, uh, through the text. Uh, to me, reading these documents, and especially reading the vices, is one of the most exciting exercises in intellectual history uh, that I know of. I mean, I happen to think the Vices is the single most interesting text, and certainly the single most creative text in the history of American political ideas. Uh, for one thing, uh, if you read it through to the end and, and you get to the final paragraphs, you'll see that this really is the first draft of Federalist 10. Uh, this is the first time that Madison works out, and, and you know, the language is sufficiently similar so that you know, we can say this with some confidence. This is really the first expression of the ideas that will take their mature form in Federalist 10. So sometime, I think this document is probably, well, it's, it's dated April 1787. Um, actually, we don't have the document in Madison's hand. We have it in a, in, in a copy uh, from one of his fellow delegates to the convention from Maryland, uh, Daniel Carroll. Uh, but I, mean, I don't think there's any question that Madison, the, the, the document is, is, is itself uh, authentic. Um, if we look at this document, and I should say this is a document I've worked with for 30 years, and, and it's really, um, I thought I knew it pretty much backwards and forward. It's really only in the last year or two I, I finally, I saw something new in it that I completely missed before uh, that, that, that I want to try to share with you. Basically, if we look at this document, though, it, it, first thing, it breaks down in, in, into two components. Um, the first, if you look at, you know, the left-hand columns where, you know, there's a, you know, kind of the rubric that's laid out on, on the left-hand side, Failure of the states to comply with the constitutional requisitions, encroachments by the states on the federal authority, violations of the laws of, of nations and of treaties. If we work our way through, let's say, the eighth item of this document, that's to say about, <coughs> excuse me, about four pages in, what we'll see is that Madison is essentially summarizing uh, the basic problems of the Articles of Confederation. That's to say, the national government, which had been framed back in the mid-1770s, ratified in 1781, uh, which Madison and other delegates' efforts to have amended uh, had never succeeded in doing, which was now in a condition of, to use the term they often use, in a condition of imbecility, uh, verging on a state of collapse. And then with item nine, 
there's a quiet but I think powerful and really remarkably powerful shift in Madison's thinking and, and this is worth noting um, look this this first sentence which is is typically Madison in the sense that it, it really understates in terms of its in terms of its rhetoric the, the point it's making in developing the evils which vitiate the political system of the United States, it is proper to include those which are found within the states individually as well as those which directly affect the states collectively. Since the former class have an indirect influence on the general malady, it must not be overlooked in forming a complete remedy. Jefferson would have put the th thought much more elegantly and much more vividly, but basically, why do I think this is so important a sentence? Because Madison is saying that if we're going to have a convention, from this point on, if we're going to have a convention to deal with the problems of national government, we should not restrict its agenda to the national government alone. That's to say, to the weaknesses of the Continental Congress. We should also use this occasion to deal with the, the vicissitudes, the vices of government within the states taken individually. That is to say, the, the, the occasion, the opportunity for a national constitutional convention should also be an opportunity to try to do something about the problem of government within the states taken individually. And from this point, Madison goes on to develop in a very quick compass three basic criticisms of the legislative history of the states. And he indicts them for the multiplicity of the laws they've been passing. This is Madison the libertarian. States have just been legislating too much. Sounds a little bit like the Supreme Court, talking about Congress. Uh, the mutability of the laws of the states legislating too much, they're also changing their laws too often and you don't want to change law too often because that will call the concept of law itself into question. And then finally, perhaps most interestingly, item 11. If the multiplicity and mutability of laws prove a want of wisdom, their injustice betrays a defect still more alarming. More alarming not merely because it is a greater evil in itself, but because it brings more into question the fundamental principle of Republican government, that the majority who rule in such governments are the safest guardians both of public good and of private rights. This is, uh, you know, what is Madison doing here? He's basically using this occasion to question, as he puts it, the fundamental premise of Republican government. The majority rule is a sufficient criterion, uh, both of what the public good consists of and also how one protects the rights, how everyone defines rights, how one protects rights against the danger of their abuse. And it's from this observation that Madison goes on to offer the analysis that we're more familiar with from Federalist 10. Okay, for 25 years of my career <laughs> as, a, as a kind of Madison scholar, you know, working on problems of national government and using this document, I thought this transition here, partly because it sets up the argument for Federalist 10, uh, which is where Madison concludes, to which the conclusion which this leads, was really the most interesting, the most important part of this text. But a couple years ago, partly because I was doing a lot of work with political scientist friends of mine, uh, and started and, and you know, kind of developed, I think, some interest that I hadn't known previously, I, got, I realized I, there's something much more interesting going on in an earlier passage. And this is the one I really want to spend the rest of my time uh, with you this morning trying to, trying to look at as a way of, of really understanding what I see as the remarkable faculties of Madison's mind. So I want you to turn back a page or two, uh, and I want you now to look at item seven. The work is, I mean, I want to say class, but I mean, it's not quite appropriate for an audience of this kind to address you in those terms, uh, but I am thinking myself acting in a teaching capacity here. So I want us to spend a little time with this text, uh, because it really is uh, within the space of, uh, you, know, the, you know, the, really the, the single long paragraph we're looking at, this is really a remarkable passage. 
And nothing, I think, better illustrates what I now see is, is at its deepest level is, is the remarkable capacities of Madison's mind. So item number seven, want of sanction to the laws and of coercion in the government of the Confederacy. A sanction by which Madison means essentially, you know, a penalty, some mechanism of enforcement and punishment. A sanction is essential to the idea of law as coercion is to that of government. The federal system being destitute of both wants the great vital principles of a political constitution. Under the form of such a constitution, it is in fact nothing more than a treaty of amity, of commerce, and of alliance between so many independent and sovereign states. So Madison begins by stating the problem. It's a radical defect of the Confederation that it lacks powers of sanction or powers of coercion. Uh, powers to enforce its decisions, require the states to comply with its decisions. Basically what Madison is taking on here is the question, can any system of federalism based upon the voluntary compliance of the states with the decisions of the national government ever be effective? That's the basic problem. Can any system of voluntary compliance, any system of federalism based on voluntary compliance, will that ever work? And Madison then, having, having posed the problem, then deals with it by making five separate points. And, and, and again, I want, us, I want us to walk through this so we, so we see exactly what he's doing here. <coughs> Excuse me. So he begins by asking a historian's question. From what cause could so fatal an omission have happened in the Articles of Confederation? In other words, why didn't they, if this point is so obvious now, why did they blow it? Why did they not get it? Why did they not see it a decade earlier? when the articles were drafted. And here is, here is the answer, it seems to me. I, I like this answer because it corresponds with something I wrote in, in my first book that Barbara referred to so generously before. Uh, Madison says, well, you know, why did so fatal omission happen? Well, from a mistaken confidence that the justice, the good faith, the honor, the sound policy of the several legislative assemblies would render superfluous any, any appeal to the ordinary motives by which the laws secure the obedience of individuals. A confidence which does honor to the enthusiastic virtue of the compilers as much as the inexperience of the crisis apologizes for their errors. So here's Madison acting in effect as a historian, asking why did they get it wrong a decade ago? And the answer is, well, you know, even though we know better now, it made sense at the time. You know, back in the mid-1770s, we were all patriots. You know, the period of what Tom Paine called sunshine patriotism. Uh, we were all united in the common cause. There was no question that the states wanted to resist Great Britain. Uh, Congress had a, commanded a great deal of respect, and so it wasn't necessary to think about coercion. It was a plausible political assumption at that point to think that the states would simply do the right thing. So Madison's first observation here, therefore, is a historical one, empirical and historical, in an attempt to figure out why did something happen the way it did back then, or why did this omission take place? The second observation is also empirical but histor and historical, but in a rather different sense. This is more the lessons of experience. The time which has since elapsed has had the double effect of increasing the light and tempering the warmth with which the arduous work may be revised. It is no longer doubted that a unanimous and punctual obedience of 13 independent bodies to the acts of the federal government ought not to be calculated on. Even during the war, when external danger supplied in some degree the defect of legal and coercive sanctions, how imperfectly do the states fulfill their obligations to the Union? In time of peace, we see already what is to be expected. So a second set of observations, also historical, but not an attempt to explain 
what happened in 1777, but rather attempt to identify, well, what have we learned since? Well, what have we learned since? We've learned that even during the war, once the start was, we realized it was going to drag on, it wasn't easy uh, to get the states to do the right thing, that the system of voluntary compliance started to break down. And now, since the war is over, it's become even more difficult to do so. So here again, Madison, reasoning from experience, and of course, you know, in his case, this meant reflecting both upon his experience in the Continental Congress in the early 1780s, when he had been intensely involved in, you know, in the activities to get the states to sustain the war effort during his final critical phase. <coughs> and then, of course, back in the Virginia Assembly in the mid-1780s, he had worked hard, but encountering a great deal of frustration, to get Virginia to support national measures. So again, Madison reasoning empirically on the basis of his own experience. Politics has lived experience. Okay, but now Madison asks a different question, and his thinking, his mind, takes a different turn. How indeed could it be otherwise? You know, how indeed could it be otherwise? What other result is to be expected? Now we get three further observations, which are cast in a completely different key. In the first place, Every general act of the union must necessarily bear unequally hard on some particular member or members of it. Secondly, the partiality of the members to their own interests and rights, a partiality which will be fostered by the courtiers of popularity. Courtiers of popularity here means state legislators, the kinds of petty demagogues, or people like Pat Patrick Henry, whom Madison in some ways despised, uh, the kinds of dominant figures in state politics. Uh, who were not sufficiently supportive of national measures. The partiality of the members of their own member, to their own interests and rights, a partiality which will be fostered by the courtiers of popularity, will naturally exaggerate the inequality where it exists and even suspect it where it has no existence. Thirdly, a distrust of the voluntary compliance, and this is the most important one, I think. Thirdly, a distrust of the voluntary compliance of each other may prevent the compliance of any, although it should be the latent disposition of all. Here are causes and pretexts which will never fail to render federal measures abortive. What has Madison done with these three points? It seems to me he, you know, I know maybe I, some of you might think I'm pushing this too, 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 too far. I have to see. But it seems to me now he's taking a step back from the empirical evidence. You know, the lessons of history, whether they relate to how the articles were framed or what we've learned since. And is asking... Uh, Essential structural, in essentially structural terms, what is the fundamental inherent, what are the fundamental inherent properties of any federal system resting on voluntary compliance of the states with national decisions? And what does Madison say? Well, basically there are three points here. The first is that the states are differently situated. So states, you know, that's to say states have a variety of interests. And therefore we can never expect the actors, the players, we can never expect them to have an equal stake in complying with federal measures, right? Because they have different interests. Secondly, there will always be state-based politicians, always, who will find it to their own partisan advantage, rent-seeking advantage, to criticize national measures for demagogic reasons, right? There will always, there will always be state politicians who, regardless of the merits of a case, Will, find, will think it to be in their partisan interest to attack, you know, criticize federal, federal measures or you know, try to prevent their, their enforcement. 
And third, and, and this is, a, as I said, this is the best point. A distrust of the voluntary compliance of each, each other, may prevent the compliance of any, although it should be the latent disposition of all. Even when we might have a common interest, a latent disposition of all, even when, in fact, the states really do have a common interest. If we're uncertain whether others are going to comply, why would any of us ever have the incentive to go first? Right? This is what political scientists or economists would call the shirking problem. It's basically a version of the free rider problem. Right? You know, why, should, why would anybody have the incentive to go first if, if, you know, if you're doubtful about the willingness of others to comply? So it seems to me what Madison has done here, now, you know, maybe I'm pushing this too far, but it seems to me he's taken a step back from, or rather he starts with the empirical observations, and he then abstracts from them. In a way that it seems to me, it's maybe, it's maybe not be game theory in any very sophisticated sense of the term, but it seems to me he is making moves that are game theoretic in a, recognize, in a recognizable way. Of course, this is a, game theory doesn't exist in the 18th century. We can say there was some qualification. Of course, Condorcet, um, who was uh, a friend of Jefferson's, and uh, you know, Madison, Jefferson had sent Madison a copy of Condorcet's work, but nobody really understood, other than Condorcet, there's no evidence that anybody understood Condorcet for about another 40 or 50 years or something like that. Um, I mean, there, there might be, you know, so we might say there is a basis for some game theory in the 18th century, but it's not something that's being actively discussed or, you know, critically examined. So it seems to me what, what strikes me about this passage, and, and I want to go on and, and say something about why it's so important as well, is it demonstrates two very different faculties in Madison's mind. On the one hand, an ability to draw, you know, careful lessons from the empirical data, but then a capacity to step back and to abstract from it, to think about problem of compliance in recognizably game theoretic terms at a time when game theory does not exist. Now, why is this so? Why do I think this is so important? Well, two basic reasons, as, as it relates to the uh, Federal Convention of 1787. Um, the first is that it seems to me now, I'm not sure I realized this earlier, but it seems to me now that in terms of framing the agenda for Philadelphia, this really is the, 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 the moves Madison is making here uh, really are the critical ones you need to explain why his agenda for Philadelphia takes the form it does. If you cannot have a system of voluntary compliance, if you cannot rest federalism on the voluntary compliance of the states with national decisions, national recommendations, resolutions, requisitions, and the like, then it follows and Madison makes this clear, that what you have to create is a system of federalism by law. That is to say, the national government has to be empowered to enact, execute, and adjudicate its own laws. It has to be made independent of the states and given the capacity to do everything it needs to do. It really has to be made self-sufficient. Enact, execute, adjudicate its own laws. Once you reach that point, once you, once you think of the national government as a government acting by law, then you have to think about how do you give it, how do you give that government its full institutional attributes. It, it's, that's an awkward phrase. Basically means, how do, you, how do you set up a national legislature? How do you set up a national executive? How do you set up a national judiciary? What are these institutions going to look like? If it has to be, if it has to be a government acting by law, how is it going to be constituted? How is it going to be designed? It's at this point, and, and here, I mean, I, I should say with, you know, the, especially having Gordon Wood here as, as one of our keynote speakers, 
uh, you know, so much of my work has, has rested on, on, on Gordon's book from, you know, 30, 30 some years ago. But it's basically, it seems to me, once you reach that point, then, then we understand how it was that Madison and his colleagues at Philadelphia reached back into the experience of the states and drew upon all the criticisms that had been mounting against the institutional design of the national government as it had been, uh, excuse me, of, of the state governments as they had been newly, newly framed and fashioned back in the mid-1770s. So the 1787 becomes a moment when the criticisms of the state governments are now applied to the task of designing uh, a national government. So this is the first critical passage here. If, you have, if you're going to have a government acting by law, it has to be a real government. It has to have those three basic departments, a bicameral legislature, a quasi-independent executive, an independent judiciary. Uh, and that, that's the critical triggering mechanism. That's kind of the point of departure, the point of entry, which explains why the Federal Convention's agenda takes the form it does. So that's point number one in this. You know, why does it really, you know, why does it really matter? The second point, the one that comes more back to my, to my somewhat tentative argument about theorizing as opposed to theory, is that we might ask this question. Suppose Madison had stopped his analysis of the problems of voluntary compliance with those first two points. The one about why did they get it wrong you know, back in the mid-1770s and what have we learned since? Would that have been sufficient to justify this transposition in, in the conclusions that he was going to draw? That's to say, if you just rested the argument on empirical data alone, what we know about what were wrong in the mid-1770s, what we've learned since, would that have been enough to sustain the same conclusions that were necessary for the Federal Convention to take the form and the course it did? Well, I think maybe not. And... Uh, Here's why. Uh, one could say, after all, that it wasn't so surprising that the states had not done as well or not acted as conscientiously or scrupulously as they should have, either during the war or since. After all, it was a long war. It was a war that strapped the resources of government more than any, uh, any event had in the previous century and a half of American existence. There had been nothing like the Revolutionary War that Americans had had to deal with. Uh, and similarly, because that was the case, it, wasn't, it might not be so surprising that in the mid-1780s the states were not doing as much as they could to comply with national, national recommendations and resolutions. After all, they were still recovering from the war. It had been a long war and we were still recovering from it. So you could say there would be offsetting empirical arguments, right? That, you know, that because, the, because the circumstances were so, were so exceptional, because it had been a long war, and the recovery was so difficult. One should not leap to radical conclusions about whether or not a system of voluntary compliance over the long run would be so bad. But, and this is you know, a big but, you know, this is a major qualification, if you make the transition that Madison does and say that these problems are inherent in the very structure of federalism under the Confederation, if you say that is, then no system of voluntary compliance will ever work, A, because the states really are differently situated, so we can't expect them to have an equal stake in enforcing national measures. B, there are always going to be state-based politicians, you know, Patrick Henry and Azilk, uh, who are going to find it in their partisan interest to abuse and misuse the national government. And C, the free rider problem, even where we all agree. Suspicions about whether others are going to comply 
will make it likely that the system is going to be vulnerable, susceptible to uh, recurring breakdowns. That's to say, if you can abstract from the empirical, from the evidence, and say, the evidence is only examples of a problem that we really understand now to be structural, inherent in the very situation that voluntary compliance represents, then it seems to me you have a much more powerful, demonstrative, conclusive argument. And that brings me back to how I'm now trying to think about Madison's mind, how I'm trying to read it. Uh, so if I'm right about this, that there is a latent game theoretic element in Madison's thinking, that somehow he stumbled upon formulations, I mean, it's not, you know, it's not the prisoner's dilemma, I'm not sure it represents a Nash equilibrium, uh, and, and so on, but nevertheless, you know, this is, you know, it is recognizably a version of the free rider problem, it does seem to partake of recognizable aspects of game theory, and it does, and it arises in a context where Madison himself is not trying to persuade anybody else, he's trying to persuade himself what is the right course of action. Then it seems that we, we come to see Madison's remarkable properties in, in, in a rather different light. Uh, when Madison writes these documents in the spring of 1787, he has an audience of one. It's himself. He's trying to sort out the problems. He's trying to work out his agenda. He's theorizing not for the purposes of answering the conventional arguments that might argue, you know, that, that say you can never have an extended national republic. He's trying to figure out what's wrong and what do we do about it. He's theorizing for purposes of analysis. He's abstracting not to persuade an audience, not to deal with the rhetorical conventions of the time, to make sense of a problem. So that's what strikes me as being, you know, in the end so remarkable uh, about Madison's mind at this remarkable juncture in American politics and in his own political career. It seems to me, as I try to envision this sometimes, the empirical and the abstract lobes in the Madison brain. I mean, you know, if, you know of course, we all know Einstein's brain is traveling around the country, you know, with that, that doctor who keeps kind of taking slices off and giving it to different people for analysis. I mean, you know, Madison's brain, fortunately, has not been subjected to the same kind of abuse. But sometimes, sometimes these days, I, I imagine if we could, you know, somehow visualize Madison's brain, we would see a brain in which the, you know, the empirical and the abstracting lobes, assuming such lobes exist, were in a relatively equal balance and, and, and symmetry, and you know, played upon one another in an extraordinarily fruitful uh, and productive way. Um, so this is, you know, a rather. I mean, there are many other things, of course, I could say about Madison's mind, and I've, I've, there are certainly other documents of his that, uh, you know, that that I've, that I've read and tried to comment on with with some care. Uh, but it seems to me that this document, uh, because it is the one that sets his agenda for Philadelphia, because it demonstrates how he uses these, these, these qualities of his mind for purposes of planning political action, you know, not of justifying it to others, but figuring out what is the course of action that ought to be taken, really gives us our most revealing uh, insight uh, into his remarkable mental faculties. Uh, and if, in fact, I'm even half right to say that there is a latent element uh, of game theory that's uh, that's going on here, and I think I am half, at least half right to say that, then it seems to be uh, appropriate to, to recognize Madison not only as Princeton's first graduate student, uh, but as the first of a very distinguished and evident line of game theorists. Thanks very much.
Sure. Um, I'll just I'll do the business up here, so please. Okay, the question, the question if I got it is, um, I've been calling Ketchum himself to answer this one, <laughs> but since he's over here, um, the question is, in Madison's commonplace uh, uh, book from his Princeton days, uh, has, uh, records passages from, from Duran, um, and isn't Machiavelli a game theorist as well? I, I, um, well, not, I know you're really pushing my knowledge, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not sure how to answer this. I mean, it seems to me that the problem that, that, that I'm wrestling with is that it's, as I understand the, the history of political ideas, it is possible to look at any of a number of writers, in, especially in the early modern period, and, and Hobbes would certainly fit this as well as Machiavelli, and recognize that there are implicitly and latently uh, analytical moves being made that we could bring under a rubric of what I'm loosely, you know, of game theory. But it seems to me, maybe you may feel different about this, it seems to me that's, that's different from saying that the concept itself, in, in a kind of self-articulated way, self-articulated way, is available. And that's to say, you know, today, if we, if we want to do it, we say, well, we know what the free rider problem is, we know what the prisoner's dilemma is, you know, we have all these different examples, you know, we, some of us, not I, know what Nash equilibrium is, uh, and we can, you know, we can therefore reason accordingly. Seems to me what's interesting about Madison is that he's stumbling upon it without quite having the, you know, the, the conceptual apparatus there in the formal, avowed sense so that he could simply pull it down off the shelf and say, well, let's plug it in here. So it's my impression, you know, but maybe I'm wrong about this, but it's my impression that he's kind of developing it intuitively, or he's intuiting it, in effect, as he tries to take a step back from the empirical data and say, well, gee, let's, you know, let's just think, is this, you know, is this an empirical problem or is this a structural problem? It seems to me the closer you get to a structural problem, then the closer you are to a kind of game theoretic formulation. Um, and, you know, and also the question, I mean, here's the other thing that I, that I, that I think is, is, is interesting about Madison, but it relates to um, problems of making sense of, of, of his agenda and others' agenda in general. Um, you know, Gordon, Gordon Woods written about this, and, and I've certainly thought about it a lot. There's the whole, what we call the whole vexatious, or I think I used this phrase once, the whole vexatious question of influence, right? How much do we derive from what we read? And how does our reading inform our thinking? And what is it that makes it actionable? You know, what is it that allows us to convert things we read on the printed page into principles or ideas or concepts that we apply in practice? Well, one of the things that makes Madison so interesting is that there's no question that he was deeply and widely read and obviously a, a, a deeply reflective and critical reader. You know, Kept some notes. I would, too bad he didn't keep a lot more, but uh, you know, uh, retained a lot. 
And yet, you know, when you go through his work, um, there are a few citations to uh, existing authorities. Of course, in the 18th century, notions of citation and attribution and, and borrowing and plagiarism, for that matter, were completely different from our own. But I also think that it may reflect a certain, well, I want to say chutzpedict, a certain kind of confident bias on Madison's part that book learning after 1776 didn't matter quite as much as it had previously. Let me give you an example of this. From 1793, uh, Madison gets involved in a big dispute with Hamilton over the foreign policy powers of the presidency. And it has to do with the extent of executive, you know, the, the extent whether the power of the, the power of the presidency over foreign affairs is inherently executive, is a matter of prerogative, as in the British Crown. And so Madison reads one of Hamilton's essay and figures out, you know, and Hamilton's drawing upon um, Locke and Montesquieu in their discussions of the British Constitution. And Madison spends a little time going through Hamilton's analysis, and then he says, "Let us quit a field of inquiry." which is more likely to perplex than to decide. And then he goes on, he makes a few further observations, saying that after all, both these guys are really partial to the British Constitution. And anyhow, we have a lot more experience um, you know, since 1776 than they had. And we don't have to reason on the basis of those, those things anymore. So I, it goes back to that, quote, that quotation from John Adams, uh, that you know, the, the, what Hannah Rent once called the thinking and the doing, which went into the American Revolution, the sense, if not of making the world anew, at least of having this remarkable experiment to engage in. This is what makes, I think, the problem so interesting, because here on the one hand you have a guy who's, you know, who is deeply read, deeply reflective, very critical about what he reads, uh, well-read, uh, but also really willing to draw from experience, and thinking the experience the Americans have had since 1776 is much better than most of the book learning that you can acquire. I mean, I think the same thing shows up, you know, when Madison talks about the celebrated Montesquieu, as in, you know, Federalist 48, 47, 48, where he starts talking about the separation of powers. I've always thought his tongue was in his cheek. You know, it's, that it's you know, like, like Montesquieu was a smart guy, you know, and, but, and we had to recognize his authority. But, uh, you know, that was then and this is now. And he's kind of a, he's kind of a problem. We have to kind of, he's a problem we have to deal with. We have to kind of co-opt him or expropriate him or neutralize him. It's not that we're really learning that much from him. He's just kind of a problem we have to deal with. Sir? Do you see Madison going through the same process with the Virginia Resolutions? Uh, do I see Madison going through the same process with the Virginia Resolutions? No, I see him going through a different process. Um, I've, I've written at length, well, not at length about the Virginia Resolutions, but um, it seems to me that if, this comes back to the consistency problem that I mentioned at the very beginning, which is, you know, how do we get from the Nationalists to the late 1780s? to the architect of a compact theory, states' rights compact theory of the Constitution, 1798. Um, I don't see the consistency problem as a big one. And the reason for that is that it seems to me when it came to um, thinking about um, sources of constitutional disequilibrium, sources of concentrated power that would be a danger to preserving the constitutional system, I think Madison was decidedly empirical. Um, from 1787 to about 1793, I think he was convinced throughout this period, let's say the period when he's framing the Constitution and the first couple terms in Congress, 
I think he was convinced that the greatest source of disequilibrium, you know, the improperly concentrated power in the Constitution, would come from the House of Representatives. And then in 1793, he starts to move away from that position. And the reason is that after 1793, issues of foreign policy come to the fore. And they force him to recognize that, in fact, the executive has all kinds of advantages that Madison had never appreciated it would be able to wield. And in fact, the executive turns out to be much more efficacious and much more potent than he had ever anticipated. And I think, I think his thinking starts to adjust accordingly. And similarly, with the question of the states, now this is, this is a little bit trickier. You know, Madison had argued in, in The Federalist that you know, the danger of any one faction taking over the entire national government, you know, because of the extended republic and all the, the different interests it would embrace, there would always be much less likely that a faction could take control of the national government uh, than it could of the states. But by 1798, if, if you're reasoning empirically, the fact is the Federalists control both houses of Congress, the presidency, and the judiciary. Uh, and it's engaged in the, in the Federalist government is, is engaged in, in a course of action which Madison could plausibly think was, was un unconstitutional, especially the Sedition Act with its apparent violation of uh, the First Amendment and so on. So I think at that point, it's, um, you know, but also for strategic reasons, Madison has no alternative but to appeal to the states. The interesting thing about this, though, is if you go back to Federalist 45, Federalist 46, where, back in 1788, where Madison is discussing the relative advantages, uh, political advantages, of the state and national governments. In a sense, he basically lays out this, the scenario of action that he's, that he's acting on in 1798. He says, if, should there, I mean, he doesn't think this is going to happen, but he says, in effect, should, should there in fact be a, uh, come a time when the national government is captured by a faction, the existence of the states as independent uh, jurisdictions with the political voice will serve as, you know, as a kind of answer, you know, serve as a, serve as a response. So there's a kind of curious sense, I think, in which, you know, Madison's ability to think comprehensively about um, the whole political system, even in ex-ante, back in 1788, is being acted on a decade later. It wasn't what he expected or intended or anticipated, but he at least contemplated the possibility. Sir. Um, I should be very diplomatic about this. Uh, the question is uh, <laughs> the question is the extent of President Witherspoon's influence on Madison, especially in uh, transmitting um, Calvinist principles to him. I think there are two questions here. Uh, one is one might one might have to deal with the very elusive question of Madison's religious convictions, uh, and then the second might involve uh, asking. To what extent do Madison's assumptions about human nature reflect, in, 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 in a distilled way, uh, a kind of Calvinist sensibility? Uh, 
Uh, and I think you're probably asking more about the second than the first. But I think I think one should say something about the first as well. Um, I'm one of those who inclined, you know, Madison's very mysterious about his religious convictions, uh, very, very private about them. I think it's plausible to say that he probably left Princeton still as an Orthodox Christian. There's a little discussion in, you know, in his private letters in the early 1770s to William Bradford, who would suggest that he's least could at least contemplate the ministry. You know, you know, Madison goes back to Virginia, he's completely bored, and he doesn't know what to do with his life, and he's envious of Bradford, because Bradford's in Philadelphia, and he's at loose ends, and he's, he's kind of a hypochondriac, and thinks he may not be long for this world. Um, so there's a little, I think there's a little evidence that Madison kind of returned here, still an Orthodox Christian in some sense. My, my own sense is, after the, the, he quietly let go of that, and moved, moved towards a kind of, 18th century deism thereafter. Uh, so that if you, you know, so that I, I, I would be reluctant to, you know, to say that, you know, Madison's sense of um, human sinfulness or human frailty has that explicitly religious or doctrin you know, doctrinal core of foundation. On the other hand, you know, the second part of this, you know, it's plausible to say that Madison's skepticism about human nature is not inconsistent with the Calvinist notion of, of, of human fallibility uh, in a general way. Um, but uh, I would be puzzled to know how you, you know, how, you, know how, how you actually document it. I mean, the fact is Madison is extremely reticent to talk about religious convictions. His own, I mean, he never talks about his own religious convictions at all after the early 1770s. Never, he never gives you a glimmer of a clue as to what they might be. And you can read that in a couple of ways. You, just, you could just say he believes so much in the privacy of conscience that he wants to make an example of it. Or you could, you could be someone more skeptical and say he probably was moving away from religious convictions and just would not want to... You know, kind of testified to it. So, in a general sense, you know, the proposition seems to me to be plausible. Like, I don't know how you document it. I mean, for a story, I don't know how. I'm not quite sure. I know how you would actually corroborate it. But Professor Ketchum wants to add something to this. So. Even though there's no documentation of this at all, 
Do I, do I have any comment on Madison's theorizing about states' rights as it, to constitutions other than around the world? No, actually, the short answer is no. <laughs> <I'm> not, <coughs> although, I can answer the first part of your question, which is, I think, you know, the subject, I mean, how we thought about states' rights and sovereignty as applies to our constitutions, which is also, I think, the subject of Pauline Mayer's talk, which, God willing, she'll give this afternoon. Um, it does seem to me that Madison understands that something that we don't, <laughs> that sovereignty is a useless concept for Americans. Uh, Madison, I mean, my basic argument in this is that um, I think Madison felt he could have solved the sovereignty problem. Sovereignty, sovereignty means that in every government, there has the conventional definition, there has to be some ultimate source of authority. That's the conventional 18th century definition. It's ultimate, it's absolute, it's irresistible, it has to reside in some one place. Madison understands correctly that Americans basically destroy the concept of sovereignty. Sovereignty does not make sense in a federal system. Federalism divides the powers of sovereignty across jurisdictions. James Wilson says, you know, in 1787, that, well, no, we, we preserve the unity of sovereignty in the United States because the, here the people are going to be sovereign. But that concept doesn't make any sense. I mean, to say the people are the ultimate source of authority is, is nice for theoretical purposes, but analytically, it doesn't have any use. So I think Madison understands that, that, sovereignty, was, that sovereignty was not a useful way to think about federalism. And... He might have had one solution to that. You know, Madison's pet proposal was to give the national government a veto over all state laws. If that had been the case, there would have been a clear location of sovereignty in the United States. But he lost that proposal. We, and we got judicial review instead, which is a much more muddled kind of, kind of concept. And I think Madison comes to realize over the course of his career that the problem with sovereignty is that it doesn't make sense anymore as, as, a, as an analytical concept, but it's still useful for rhetorical purposes. And it's dangerous. You know, the, 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 the task, of, the problem of preserving federalism, I think Madison thinks, is to work out on a case-by-case -case basis which government is best qualified to exercise which powers. The problem with sovereignty is it's an appeal to absolutes. And when you appeal to absolutes, you eliminate the kind of middle ground and the room for nuance and descriptive precision that federalism really requires. So I think Madison comes to understand by the end of his life, of course, the end of his life comes after the nullification controversy, uh, you know, of 1832, he comes to understand that sovereignty now is, for Americans, is a very dangerous thing because it's an appeal to absolutes which rules out any middle ground for accommodation. The real problem with federalism is, is, to, is to figure it out in its particulars. Or, you know, the way I like to put it, the truth of federalism is in its details. 
An appeal to sovereignty gives you no room for details. It's an appeal to absolutes, and therefore it's a formula for confrontation as opposed to conciliation. Before asking you to join me in, in thanking Jack so much for this uh, discovery of Madison as the first of Princeton's game theorists, uh, let me welcome those who came in late uh, and ask that you be sure to pick up your registration badges, which will be key to uh, entering this uh, hall later in the day. We're going to take a break now, and our second session will resume promptly at 1045. For those of you who weren't here earlier, uh, Pauline Mayer has been delayed in arriving here, so we're transposing Jennifer Nadulski's paper that will be given at uh, 1045 and hope that Pauline will be here herself to give her paper this afternoon. But first, let's thank Jack very much for a wonderful paper. Yeah. 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 Yeah.